If you're a startup enthusiast, you journal and write down your thoughts from the past. It's the Finding the Net podcast. Welcome to another episode of Finding the Net. I'm Andrew, product designer, CEO, and creator of Thunk, a journaling app that lets you find patterns in your thinking. And I'm Danielle, a self-conscious creator and content strategist building Thunk's audience alongside Andrew. This podcast is an inside view of what it's like to build, launch, iterate on, and grow a consumer application from the ground up. We're on a mission to get a thousand people using and loving Thunk, and we want to bring you along for the ride. As you listen to Finding the Net, you'll learn from our mistakes and our wins, and you'll find new ways to approach your own creative journey. Let's, Let's get, get into, into the, the episode. episode. So, do we want to dive into our week in Thunkland? Yeah, let's do it. What happened for you? What was exciting? I'm really excited by the progress we're making in the tool. I think I finally feel really good about the direction we're going in. It's like coming full circle to the first document I ever wrote about what we're working on. And I'm sure we'll go into that at some point in the episode today. But that's always a good sign when you're like, oh, the fundamental thing that I started with, we're going back to that and we're refining on that. That's usually a good sign. So I'm really back excited about basics. that. And we've got this backlinking thing, which I think is the foundation of something that we're going to build a ton of value on top of. So I'm just thrilled that's alive. Yeah, it's really exciting to be going in that direction too, especially the space just feels like it's getting so much bigger and there's so much room for different people to come in and find their place. Yeah, and it's the foundation upon which we can build the value in the direction that we believe in, the direction of the joy and the beauty and the fun, the delight. And we can infuse that on top of this like kind of core insight and that'll be different. It'll be our own take on it and it'll be fun. And that's actually where we left off last week. We were talking about Nigel and Julian and, you know, why <laughs> they even exist, these two adorable little foxes. So maybe that's something we can talk about this week. You know, why the foxes? What the fox? What the fox? Yeah. <laughs> it's, this is funny because the foxes we did really early in the process of branding. Like it was very quick that I went out and said, let's go hire someone to build us some really cute foxes. I remember and... you were sending me different styles from like artists you're choosing from. Oh yeah, I sent you all the artists that I was considering. Yeah. Right? I don't even know where did that, did I tell you where that came from? The idea to do that? I honestly don't even remember. Weren't they gonna be something else first, not foxes? And then we oh, liked sheep. the foxes. Sheep. Yeah, it was gonna be sheep. Cause we were doing like, Join it was flock, gonna be the black, the black sheep. sheep. Yeah, we had that whole conversation and then, oh gosh, did he create, I want to, I, th I think he might've created a couple of different versions. He did a sheep and he did a fox and the fox was just so strong. It was just really apparent that was the way to go. I feel like people but, really love foxes too. I do. Yeah. <laughs> the foxes are just the best animal ever. <laughs> we did such a good job. <laughs> we were the best. Maybe it comes down to an approach that I've always had and it's a way of infusing my own self into what we're doing. And I think probably the people that are attracted to be around me and work on this thing are also find this kind of stuff appealing where we just have a little bit of fun with what we're doing. And that's really what Nigel and Julian are. And 
some of the marketers that I really admire, or they're not really marketers, but people who do marketing in a particular way, like Johnny Cupcakes really inspires me. There's this guy, Elon Lee, who did all the work on Exploding Kittens, like the campaign that they ran on Kickstarter. Oh my God, and Exploding Kittens those, is so much fun. Yeah, <laughs> and those guys just have some of the most awesome and fun, creative ways to, to market something. Elon... He worked with Nine Inch Nails and they did this thing with a CD where they put like heat sensitive ink on it. So when it went into the CD player, it looked one way. And when it came out, it spun around and heated up and it looked different. I thought that was like such an incredibly inventive way to handle a CD. He did this whole program for Halo where they told a story over pay phones. And so these pay phones around the country would just ring and you'd pick it up and some fan would listen to the story. And there were like forums as they tried to reconstruct what they were telling. Johnny Cupcakes is a, a store that sells t-shirts, but it's called Johnny Cupcakes. And people are confused all the time and think <laughs> that it's cupcakes and they get really pissed off. And he thinks that's hilarious. And so he like will talk Except about on April 1st, they actually do sell cupcakes. <laughs> yeah, even better. That's so much money. So one like, day a year, they actually have cupcakes in the shop. <laughs> totally. But that guy, he's just so fun to listen to and high energy, creative. So there's just so many fun things that I think you can do. And in software, I, I just feel like that isn't done as frequently. And I wanted to have some sort of a fun mascot for us. And we were really big on morning pages and stuff like that at the time. And, but I think that, you know, that, that comes up that idea in morning pages, but I think it's fundamental maybe to our customer is this idea of creating and this idea that there are these two parts of yourself, this critic and this inner child. And that in order to create, we have to follow this sort of sequential process. It's like, First, the inner child gets to hang out and the critic has to go somewhere else. And the inner child just gets all his ideas out and comes up with them. And then at some point, that critic does need to come back and look at all the work and be like, this is the good stuff. And maybe this is the not so good stuff. And you have to trade in and out of these personalities. And shutting up the critic is one of the hardest things to do. I don't know. Have you ever come across any difficulty with this in your work? Every day. Yeah, because it just comes in before you even realize it. I was even doing this in my morning pages this morning where I found myself like stopping and staring out the window, thinking of a way to phrase something. And yeah. it's like constantly like checking yourself, just let it flow, let it flow, let it flow. And I'm reading the Getting Things Done book right now. Yeah. Classic. David Allen. The book you know, of that, I, the front of that is so funny. He's he's wearing like that ridiculous <laughs> suit. It's so funny because it looks like the worst. It's going to be the worst business book, but it's actually like really thoughtful about. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's so, not like a suit guy yeah. thing. It's like a really thoughtful approach to just work in general. Yeah, and it's it's very honest about where people are. I feel like a lot of business books, like they really more speak to this ideal like human being that doesn't exist in real life. So anyways, I was reading, or I am reading, Getting Things Done, and there was a passage when I was reading earlier today, actually, that was talking about that in this section on when you're starting a project, you need to brainstorm. And it was saying in the book, if you even care slightly what your critic thinks, and this is even in the context of other people, like if you're brainstorming different ideas, you stop focusing on the ideas and, and solving the problem, and you start 
editing yourself, which is what we've been talking about. And that actually limits your capacity for ideas. And it's, you really need to be in that other state of mind, which is Julian, the inner child who's playful and just curious and asks why and doesn't think anything is a bad idea inherently because kids don't. Yeah, there's this book. Gosh, I think it's I think it's by the, the folks that founded IDEO. I can't even remember the name of it. Something about creativity. But there's this funny part of that which really resonated with me where they talk about going into a kindergarten and laying a bunch of paper and crayons and watercolors <laughs> on the table. And if you do that and you just step back, the, these kindergartners, they'll just grab the paper and start drawing stuff and painting and they will have zero hesitancy to st like start creating. That is the inner child, like just literally being children and living yeah. through their own <laughs> existence. If you were to do the same thing, if you go into any conference room at any business and you laid out the exact same paper and the exact same crayons and the exact same watercolors and you left the room, everyone would just sit there patiently waiting for instructions about what to do. Nobody would grab the paper and just start drawing. And that's because that critic gets pretty loud over time. And yeah, so these guys, these little characters, I think are a really fun way to personify that, talk about that. And I don't know about, <laughs> I personally am having an awful lot of fun just going into our Slack channel and just saying stuff as these characters because they are a part of us, right? There's this part that wants to just have a good time and play. And then, and then there's this critic and there's a lot of, the funny thing is it's easy to look at that critic and think, God, I hate this person. They're just, they're the problem. If we could just have no critic, everything would be great. And of course that's a lie. Like it's not really true. The, that, that part is your taste. That part is the part that makes things really separates the things that are worth pursuing versus the things that are not. And we absolutely need it. But it actually has this really funny use for us, which is we can joke as a team when we're being really particular about something like, oh, mm -hmm. I'm Nigeling so hard on this. Like I'm being a total Nigel on this. And or when I go down a rabbit hole in a thread on 10 different subjects, I'm just like, ooh, that was really Julian of me. <laughs> very Julian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it I don't know, it brings it it brings humor to our interactions with each other and I think that's such a hard thing to maintain in a company. It's just so quickly can become this thing where it's not fun anymore and we're not enjoying ourselves, we're not seeing and playing with those different parts of our personality that come out throughout the course of what is ultimately a creative act, which is creating thunk, putting it out there into the world. Even just if, if we zoom out for a minute in the space in general, we're still going through our positioning and what exactly is Thunk? What are we exactly mm, creating? We're getting here? good. We're getting good, though. It's, it's, it's not done yet, but it's a lot better than it was. And in this kind of space in general, this like note-taking, personal knowledge management, it's just been so like sterile and academic. I'm writing my PhD and I am researching <laughs> how molecules react to, I don't even know another word to go with molecules. <laughs> and that's something we're doing like really differently. And I think Julian and Nigel are a really good example of that because it's more, okay, it's fun, it's learning, it's creating rather than this really academic act. That's what sucked all the fun out of everything is like <laughs> writing those five paragraph essays and teaching there is one way to do things and, and stop asking questions. And we're doing that really differently. And it's even part of our mission that we want joy and beauty and delight. 
Yeah, it's a spirit that I want more <laughs> for myself. It's a way of approaching life that I want more for myself and for everyone, honestly. It's, it is something that is sorely lacking in general adulthood and even maybe in a very concentrated format lacking in whatever we want to call this like personal knowledge management space that's going on. It's, it was born out of, I think, a lot of very intellectual type people. And that's a great thing. Like, I'm glad that this is around and I am definitely a nerd and I'd be lying if I pretended that that, that stuff didn't appeal to me. But it's, it, it is really true that there isn't a lot of fun happening. And there is a lot of very serious discussions about personal knowledge management. And sometimes, I don't know, here's a, here's a good question for you. I don't know if you think this is true, but I do. <laughs> so I'm curious what you think. <laughs> is, is it possible that the tools or the space has suffered from this thing where people are getting excited about the possibility of the tools, which I think is real, like these sort of networked thinking and this different approach. It is exciting and powerful. But sometimes I feel like the entire industry is just noodling with information and not really producing anything. And that, to me, is really contrary to what I want to do, which is help people create stuff. Do you, I don't know, do you think that's happening? Do you see that differently or similarly? Yeah, it's almost like it's like a race to collect the most knowledge, but I don't know what we're really like doing with it, if that makes sense. <laughs> and I, yeah. I get caught up in that too, where I'm like, oh, I read this article and then I did my notes and then I put them here and blah, blah, blah. And it has been helpful for me writing weekly because I'm able mm. to use that functionality to remix those thoughts yeah. But there's definitely more being produced around the potential of the tools than real life, <laughs> yeah. if that makes sense. It's, look, I can connect all my thinking and I can do X, Y, Z and make this idea. And I think, and it wasn't even targeted at a specific tool, but it was the collector to creator course with Nest Labs that was the first thing I've seen that like actually breaks down how you do it and then gives you the outcome you want to find, right? Like you're remixing your ideas and you're curating and then you're taking this information you've pulled and you're putting it into a different tool and you're mind mapping and then you get to these different ideas is what you then produce as an outline. And then you mm. write that and that's what you end up producing. But yeah, a lot in the space I feel like is very much just around, this is amazing, you can link your thoughts. <laughs> And less of, these are the thoughts I linked. Yeah. And the funny thing about that course you're mentioning is it's in the name, right? Collector to creator. And, mm -hmm. and that's what I believe in and want. I want creators. I want to help people be creators. I want to make more creators. I want more creators in the world. And uh, I think that's something that we'll you know, continue to, to strive towards with the tool. It's just, it's great if you're networking and you're thinking. It's great if you're connecting your thoughts. And I believe in it. I obviously wouldn't be building a tool in the space if I didn't think there was value in it. But I really am most interested in it as a precursor to creating more, to putting more out there, yeah. to giving more to the world. And that's something that I think we want to think about a lot. Are we doing that? Are we enabling that? Are we letting people create? And yeah. I think we will, because that's what we're trying to do. It feels really productive, right? To collect all this information hmm. and process it and put notes in. So it's like this idea of like productivity porn. And I don't know what you would call this knowledge porn, something like that. <laughs> I don't know. Where you're just like collecting all these thoughts and notes and ideas. And then 
that feels really productive. So you're like, okay, like I don't really need to do anything more. Like I get on Sundays and I'm like, all right, I've planned my week and I'm done. (laughs) Right. that, That was all the work. Yeah, the space is fairly inundated with the productivity porn, as you put it. There are infinite YouTube videos of, here's how I set up my Roam. Here's how I set up my Notion. Here's how my Obsidian graph looks. Here's how, and there's all this conversation about how to use these things. And maybe that's part of the evolution that we're in right now. And maybe that's a great thing. I don't want to crap on what is an awesome, exciting thing that's happening. But it's 100% the case that I think you can lose yourself in the fun of noodling with these tools and you can forget that it's just a tool. And I, I love the tool analogy because it reminds you that it's just like a hammer. I feel like it's people are adjusting the grip on their hand, their hammer for three days straight and they're not hammering any nails into place. You know what I mean? It's it's, what good is the tool if you're just continually messing with the tool? We got to get to output and we've got to get to actually being better at what we're trying to do with the tool. Do you think that... Part of that is the intimidation factor of the space being like or more academic than it is, I think, playful or a typical creator space. I don't even know what a typical creator space looks like. Yeah, there certainly are some things that we could call creative spaces, like a makerspace would be an example. I think that the intellectual angle, what it might do is exacerbate an already existing underlying fear. We talked about mm. publishing fear, I think, before. and. Yeah. That's a, that's an underlying fear that's just there, whether you're getting into it or not. But if that exists, and then you have all these people trying to produce things, and there's this sort of like intellectual tone going on, it just makes the fear worse, because you're thinking you're intimidated, and intimidation is just going to exacerbate the already existing Nigel inside of you that's, that's not right, that's not going to be good enough. Your notes aren't as good as Nataliasen's notes. Tiago Forte wouldn't do that. That it's just it's that's not that interesting. And and that voice I think gets a lot louder when the tone of the space is intellectual. And when the tone of the space is everyone's acting really smart. Because you know, I think we talked last week about the expert and like how that's the comfortable place to be. So the scene is like these intellectual experts who are telling you, here's how to do it. And that's cool. We need those people. But I do think that the energy, it does inhibit. It does get in the way of things because we don't have a a kind of underlying maybe culture of openness and play. There are communities and people that give that off. Like it's okay to play here. And maybe that's what we need. Like somehow... An energy that just says, it's okay to play. It's okay to have fun. It's okay to publish things that are not done. That's what the, the digital gardening thing is. Yeah. I feel like we've talked a lot about this idea of a digital garden. And I think, is it Maggie Appleton who has the really good overview? Yes, she does. And Laura also has some great stuff. But Maggie has some very strong stuff. And Maggie's stuff goes to the next level of visualizing it. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. It's on my uh, to-read list going because I just collect. <laughs> the best part is you don't even have to read. You could probably just go and look at her pretty pictures and you take something away from it. We should bring back more picture books yeah. for adults. <laughs> yes, we should bring back picture books. We should bring back all of those fun things. I feel like it's also like easier for our brains to 
handle because we think in, in concepts, we're just translating it into words. And sometimes concepts resonate much more fully when you see it drawn out and you can imagine the whole picture of what yes. something is and get that context. Yeah, totally. I was reading one of her articles that was about metaphor. And she gave the examples that our brains actually interpret everything through metaphor. And that metaphor is perhaps not so much what we learn in school, or at least this is the way I learned it, that it's this like literary flourish that you can do. Yeah. In this article, she talks about a book called Metaphors We Live By. In the book, they make this assertion that your brain fundamentally understands almost everything as a metaphor. And that sort of jives with this idea that we have this tree of knowledge and it's we're building on it and building on it and we're relating things and we're associating them. Also probably why these network thinking tools are so popular. But <laughs> they give this these great concrete examples of this. So they talk about a couple of examples of metaphor. Argument is war and time is money. And they prove actually very easily <laughs> that we have these metaphors like deeply embedded into our mind and our culture. Okay, I feel like I'm just going to have to read this book now because I'm thinking of, are there different metaphors in Chinese or Hindi or French or Spanish or all of these, all of the other world languages that then kind of shape those cultures like that too. I think there are, and I'm sh hoping that the book goes into all that stuff because I literally just read like the first chapter. They also point out, and Maggie gives some illustrations for this, that what metaphor does is it hides certain aspects of things and it emphasizes other aspects of things. I think definitely other cultures have different metaphors through which they view things. And in a way, that's hard for us to even get our heads around because our whole worldview is rooted in these metaphors. Our whole way of thinking is rooted in the like sort of blind belief that this is true. It's interesting because I'm thinking of an article I read from a woman named Paulina. She writes The Profile, which is a really popular newsletter. And she wrote something, I forget where she grew up. I think it might be Bulgaria. I don't remember. She's bilingual. She speaks two languages. And she wrote something huh. on how her personality is slightly different in English than it is in her native tongue. Mm. And that's just so interesting to me that your brain can give you a different personality just because of the words you're speaking and using. And it's super interesting. Yeah. No, I've heard people talk about dreaming in other languages and how like their experience is different when they're dreaming in the one language versus another. Mm -hmm. And Maybe to bring this whole thing back to, to Thunk and what we're working on, once I started to read this book and realized that, okay, we do really interpret the world through metaphor and we do have this like tree of knowledge that we just stack these metaphors on top of. Mm -hmm. And then we have this idea of digital gardening, right? And then we have this idea of this thinking tool that's connecting stuff. And maybe it's Maybe we're at just like the, the rudimentary level of, okay, A and B are associated with one another, right? These two ideas that I wrote notes about. But once I start to do that, I can, I can really unpack my thinking in a very different way. Mm -hmm. I haven't, we haven't really had a lot of tools that mimic this idea where I can sort of state in the tool, here's an association. Here's an association between these two things that might seemingly be different and then there's the second degree things that are maybe not obviously, okay, yeah, these two things are associated, but 
A and B are associated, but also B and C are associated. So are C and A associated with each other? Mm -hmm. Like maybe, I don't know. So that was another part of something I was reading in Getting Things Done Today about this idea that you can only hold like a certain amount of things in your working memory and remember. So your ability to connect those is pretty limited to do within your own control. If your mind makes the association, that's great. But when you get it all out onto paper or paper, pen or whatever into thunk, and you can start to make those connections a lot more easily because you're not like struggling to hold on to them all anymore too, which is such a power. Why this kind of new tool, this new networked thinking space is so powerful because things aren't siloed in linear files anymore. They're all there and they're connected which is how our Mm. brains work yeah yeah and maybe i love to it's almost i want to go back to that idea of play i want to i almost want to think of it as you write it down you connect it and then it's in like the play space and now you can play with it now you can see it now you can associate it now you can mess around with those things that were just ideas in your head at one point they were just things that you were you know pass in your sort of linear thing just randomly or maybe even not jumping around just spouting off ideas and stuff and once once you if you capture that stream you can mess around with it. And once you've externalized it and put it in a place, you now are interacting with your thoughts in this really different way, in this way where it's you can take 20 of them or 10 of them or things that are really not seemingly related to one another, but you can see, oh, there's a vague association here. What if I play with that? What if I elaborate on that? What if I just draw a connection here and then make a new card that like explains that, a new note that explains that connection. That's something that I, is a really exciting idea, but I don't think has really been realized yet. And fundamentally, it's just, it's so much of that fun aspect. Like you're thinking, I'm thinking of like being a little kid and playing with Legos and having all of the Legos of all these different sizes, like all scattered around and I have the instructions and I've made the thing. And then I'm like, okay, well that's done. Like, great. I still have this bucket (laughs) of Legos and it's, what if I put this here? What if I tried to do this? Or what if I took this bridge from building Hogwarts over here to (laughs) building this car over here or something? Clearly I've been playing with Legos recently, but it's like that curiosity of, I wonder if this works. I wonder if mm. this relates to this. I wonder. And it's not, I feel like we get very limited in, in our own practicality in a way. And it's the critic, but it's also this idea that maybe some of our parents put into us of you have to be practical. Like it's practical to learn that. And we just don't have a lot of fun anymore for things. Yeah. Yeah. There was, I, I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast before, but at some point decided that some of my friends who I love dearly are suffering from what I call practicality bias, which is like when they're thinking of business ideas or they're thinking of things that, that particularly business ideas, it always has to sound good. It has to make sense. Like when you say it to somebody out loud that they're like, oh yeah, I understand that people need money. So they're going to pay for this thing or people need this, that, and the other thing. And one of the most ridiculous things that one of the first things I made was this ridiculous fake shaving app that sort of could not be farther from practicality. And one of my very good friends who I love was just like, what are you doing? Like, why are you spending your time doing this? Not not in a mean way. He wasn't being a jerk about it. He was just like, I really don't understand like why this appeals or has any interest. And then Years later, he said to me, he said, I did not understand what you were doing with that thing at all. And you showed me 
a different way of thinking because it worked. I saw how many you know people played with that thing and interacted with it. And I often think that because we play so little, we don't value like this entertainment and play. And we lose sight of the fact that Hollywood is this massive industry that's just designed to entertain us. Like media yeah. is gigantic business. Even when all the shutdowns were happening for mm. COVID and stuff, I remember seeing something that was just, it was some pithy comment about, haha, your arts degree isn't essential now. And then someone was like, literally all you're doing is watching Netflix. Who do you think is making those scientists? Like, no, <laughs> it's artists that make all of your entertainment. And most of the things we look forward to doing at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Like, you know, reading or watching Netflix or reading an article or something. And those stories give us meaning too, right? Like they are the lens. They end up being the lens through which we interpret our lives. And it's even, I, I was having this conversation the other day, like it's in everything. Marketing is stories. It's not like this has helped Andrew become X times more productive. It's <laughs> Yeah. That's the best. Changed. <laughs> That's such a good example of ridiculous marketing. One of my favorite articles about this is actually about the Nest thermostat, where they talk about the emotion of hardware and the decision making. Really, really brings home a powerful concept, which is that people make the decision to buy things with their emotional brain and then they rationalize it. But we think <laughs> that it works the other way around. We think that we make it rationally, but in fact, that's not what happens at all. The example with the Nest thermostat that they give is, you know, that the Nest thermostat has the most rational copy that you could imagine. Nest helps you save money. Like that's the focus of a lot of their messaging. But their imagery tells you a very different story. Their imagery tells you no other thermostat in the world looks this good. This is for somebody who values aesthetics. This is for somebody who has taste, who wants a beautiful home. And you're going to be the coolest bro on the block when you get this Nest thermostat, which is how you sell it to your spouse, right? Like very thought out, right? Like that's what the conversation that happens. You want to spend $250 on a thermostat? Are you kidding? Yeah, but we're going to save money. This is an investment, you know? Genius, genius, genius. To drive it home, they show you a Nest ad and then they Photoshop in like a Honeywell thermostat that's in that like classic beige you know, color that, that like computers used to be made in before Apple sprung onto the scene, you know, and it really shows you that if you just put that ugly thermostat in there, you probably wouldn't buy it. You probably wouldn't go for it. Uh, you know, because that decision-making is made in this part of your brain, that's totally not rational at all. And it's fascinating to sort of learn that and, and to see, uh, you know, companies focus on you know, telling you these stories as a way to, to sort of <laughs> market to you and get you to make a decision that makes you feel good. And I love the way that you put it, like sort of connect with these things that we interact with. I love the idea of this, you know, practicality bias. I think we should dig into that next week because I think yeah. there's a lot to explore there. Great. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Finding the Net. If you're interested in trying out Thunk, you can send us an email to podcast at thunkjournal.com. We're in the midst of our beta program, and we'd love to have you join us. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. And you can always catch us on Twitter at Danielle is Messy and at Nowband, exactly like it sounds. 
拜拜。